Father, we come this morning because you've invited us to come to you. You've told us to call unto you that you will answer us and you will show us great and mighty things which you have done and which you yet will do. And Lord, we all need your touch in our lives today, spiritually above all, but certainly physically and emotionally. You're the God of, of health, the God who knows our complete being inside and out, and you're able to restore and, and to empower. We ask you to be present here today and to guide in our study of your word. And Father, as this Sunday we particularly think of the church as it is persecuted around the world, and even as we read in this uh, place to, in, in this uh, little article today, in 70 nations of the world, the church is persecuted in one way or another. And Father, we would pray particularly for the church in the country of Sudan. We know there, Father, that the persecution is not only based on religion, but it's based on ethnicity too, as the Arabs in the north persecute the black Africans in the south. And yet, Father, your church has grown amongst the black Africans, and we pray that under persecution it will continue to grow. And we pray that your hand will be upon your people, and you give them strength and peace. And Lord, that you will work a mighty miracle in that land and bring uh, salvation to the northern part of the country that will penetrate into the Islamic uh, communities of the northern part of that uh, war-torn nation. Father, you are the God of this world, and the enemy of our souls is under your heel. And we pray you'll defeat him there in that land and bring glory to your name. Father, we thank you for your presence among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you open to the seventh chapter of the book of Judges, let me reconstruct the scene for you again. We're are, we are in northern Israel, and we are on the eastern edge of the Jezreel Valley, which, as I've mentioned to you before, is the only large, flat plain in all of Israel, and even that, not very large. We are at the base of the hill of Morah, on the eastern edge of the Jezreel Valley, as you're looking this way, on the eastern edge of the Jezreel Valley, there are, are, are four major mountain outcroppings. You have the Nazareth Ridge at the far northern edge of the valley. Then you have Mount Tabor over at the northeastern corner of the valley. Then just south of that, you have the Hill of Mora. And then south of that, you have Mount Gilboa. And then as you sweep around the southern end, you come to the Mount Carmel Range. So the Jezreel Valley is surrounded on almost all sides by mountains. Only to the northwest does it open out to the sea, where you find, for example, Haifa and Acre, or Akko as they call it today, are the two ports on opposite ends of the opening there to the sea. And so we're, we're sort of um, directly east at the base of the Hill of Mora, which is really the lowest hill of all of these mountain ridges that I mentioned uh, to you there. The Midianite camp is securely in place there at the base of the mountain. And, and this camp was intended to be the base of operations for the Midianites as they set about their annual confiscation of the grain and the young animals that had been grown in Israel during the previous year. This has been going on now for eight consecutive years. It has happened because Israel had again become apostate. They had turned their backs upon the Lord and they were worshiping Baal in his many forms, even as we saw a, a, a um, 
altar to Baal was even on Gideon's father's property. However, God said, it's time for revival. And so God brought revival. And this revival begins through this man, Gideon. And he is used by God to initially tear down the altar of Baal on his own father's property and to initiate the work of God in the land of Israel. Gideon of Manasseh, Gideon of the clan of the Abizarites, according to his own testimony, the smallest and least important clan in all of the tribe of Manasseh. A man of humility and a man of faith, not a man, of course, who doesn't make mistakes. You'll discover as you go through Scripture that every, uh, ver almost every one of the great men and women mentioned in Scripture make a really big boo-boo at some point in time, which is encouraging, I think, to us all. Not that we should go out and, and commit boo-boos, but that they are not so holier than we are that we have no hope to attain to what God does ha has done through them. Gideon, as you know, had raised an army, but God had culled that army and had reduced it down to 300 men. Hardly could even be referred to as an army anymore. Wouldn't even make a good regiment, uh, let alone an army. Yet he, with these 300 men, have crept up on the Midianite camp in the dark of the night. And they have surrounded the enemy camp on three sides. The fourth side was up against the hill of Morris, so they didn't have to worry about that side. So they, they, they surrounded the camp on the other three sides. Each man was equipped with a sword, but their primary weapons were the shielded torches, the shofar, and above and beyond all, the terror of the Lord. At that moment, at the appropriate moment, as they were all in place, Gideon broke the, the clay pot that shielded his torch and it blazed forth and he blew on the shofar, the ram's horn, which makes a rather unmelodious sound sometimes, and then yelled out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And as I mentioned to you last time, right down the line like falling dominoes to his left and right, this was repeated as it went down through a total of 300 men that were spread out on the two on the three sides of the camp of the Midianites. Now, the flaring of the torches, the blowing of the shofars, and the shouting of the voices brought fear to the hearts of the guards and then into the camp of Israel, but it was the terror of the Lord that magnified it beyond comprehension. I mean, God just instilled a terror in their hearts that was beyond reason. Because, you know, if they'd have stopped and counted one, two, three, four, you know, they'd have realized there weren't very many out there. Of course, they might have believed, and certainly God put us in their hearts, that these are only a few of the thousands that are out there that are actually holding the torches and blowing the trumpets. Because normal armies, you had a few who blew trumpets. You didn't have everybody blowing a trumpet. Well, the rousing of the camp, you know, the men had mostly probably fallen asleep and the guards come running pell-mell into the camp, yelling and screaming about the attack which is coming. And, and it just broke out in absolute chaos, total disorganization. Uh, even the officers weren't about trying to organize troops. They were scared out of their armor themselves. And each man fled chaotically out, well, at least generally to the east because they knew that was a direction which there might be sanctuary if they could get across the Jordan River. And they killed each other as they got in one another's way. They didn't know who each one was and they were stabbing left and right as they ran. 
Thus began the most terrifying night in the history of the Midianite nation. And Gideon, seeing the enemy flee, sent out a call immediately for reinforcements. The enemy is on the run. Come and help us. And so the word was sent, was sent to recall the 32,000. It was sent up amongst other tribes, including the tribe of Ephraim. And they were to hopefully help pursue. And the immediate call was to shut off the Jordan so the enemy can't get away because Gideon's idea was not just to rout the Midianites out of here. His idea was to wipe out the Midianites. Well, let's read the last couple of verses of chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zib, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zib at the winepress of Zib, while they, were while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zib to Gideon from across the Jordan. Let me just say here, before we go any further, that whenever you see a situation like that where it says, somebody is killed at the rock that has his same name and somebody else is killed at the winepress that has that same name. That's because the rock was called that because he was slain there and the winepress was called that because he was slain there. Okay? It wasn't just coincidental that he happened to be killed at that rock and, and, and at that winepress. Well, the messengers, now, I, you know, trying to think through all of the um, events that had to happen here we just have to realize somehow, some way, that the messengers were able to get to Ephraimites who were fairly close to the Jordan River so they could get to the fords before the Midianites, who were already running, <laughs> can get there. In other words, the messenger has to go like crazy to get to the Ephraimites and to rouse them out of their sleep and get them on their way, uh, running down in the dark also, of course, down to the Jordan River. All of this is somehow coordinated, and of course, certainly by the hand of God. So there is a response to the messengers. Did Ephraim know what was happening? Certainly they had an, a, a knowledge of what was happening. They will pretend like they didn't, as we'll see as we get into the 8th chapter. But uh, they will respond, and they will respond quickly, sort of like minute men, you know, almost. And so many, many... I think probably thousands of Ephraimite warriors rushed down from the highlands into the Jordan Valley to try to capture the fords of the Jordan before the Midianite army got there. The fords of the Jordan, the ones that are being referred to here uh, near Beth Barah, are located about 10 miles south-southeast of Bethshan. Bethshan is the main city located in the Harod Valley, the valley that connects the Jezreel Valley with the Jordan Valley, and it runs sort of at a northwest-southeast uh, angle. And, and right about in the middle of that, on the north side, is Bethshan. So from there down to the fords was about 10 miles. And so this is where the men of Ephraim were running. Now the question is, what does Beth Barah mean? Well, Beth Barah translates as the house or town of the fords. But this is the only place in all of Scripture that that word shows up. There is no place else in Scripture which mentions Beth Barah. And since nobody has ever been able to find a place called Beth Barah, it's very possible that the real meaning here is that they were to go down to the place of the fords. 
Beth Barah means the place of the fords. Get down there to the place of the fords of the Jordan River. One of the things we need to be reminded of, I think, and you're reminded of this if you visit Israel or if you see pictures of Israel, the Jordan is not a very big river. Those who have written songs about mighty Jordan rolling on down have never been to Israel. <laughs> now, I understand the, uh, you know, what they're trying to say by that, but Jordan is not a mighty river. Now, in flood stage, it becomes uh, very difficult to pass, as <laughs> Israel knew, and, and God had to raise up the river in order for them to cross into Canaan at that moment. But under normal times, the Jordan is not a very big river. If you're a good pole vaulter, you wouldn't have any problem getting across the river without uh, getting wet. You'd have to place your pole very well, of course, but, you know, you could do it. So the Jordan is crossable at places other than the ford. And that is why so many of the Midianites actually get over the river, because the Ephraimites do take the ford, uh, fords there, and, and they do kill a lot of Midian, uh, Midianites. But there are thousands, as we'll see as we go on, who get over the Jordan River. Now, all you have to do, of course, is to be sure you're not trying to swim with your armor on and, and get across the other side of the river. And if you're fleeing, you probably don't have your armor on anyway. These guys were in bed. They don't sleep in your armor, probably, especially if you're not worried about being fighting. Know, because they've never had any problems with Israel before. I mean, they were lounging in their camps in many ways. It's a wonder they even had guards. But uh, so, so the, the River Jordan is, is not a great barrier in, in most times of the year. The two Midianite chieftains who are referred to here, Oreb and Zeb, we need to understand that these were probably the two commanders of the army. Because if we get further into the 8th chapter, we discover there are two kings of Midian that Gideon deals with here. So obviously, uh, there is not to be any confusion. The kings are the rulers of the whole nation. These two men are probably the commanders of the army that are captured here at the, uh, at the fords. Now, the name Oreb means raven, and the name Zeb means wolf. Now... You know, we could think about that for a minute and see, think how appropriate, you know, because wolves and, and ravens are usually thought of as relatively hostile or undesirable animals, unless you're, of course, a, a biologist and you're studying them and you think they're wonderful. But ravens tend to be, you know, what, carrion eaters, aren't they? Uh, kind of pick up the leftovers kind of birds. And uh, wolves, of course, uh, can be harmful animals. So uh, that's very appropriate for the commanders of this force. And, you know, it's very possible that these are the names the Israelites gave to them. And their real names might have been something else. Uh, but whatever the case, it's very clear that they're the ones who are captured here. Now, as we read that uh, last verse there in, in verse 25, in the last line it says, And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. We think, how barbaric. You know, you kill the guys and cut their heads off and drag them around with you. But we have to remember, there, were no, there was no photography in those days. There, there was no way of uh, proving that you killed somebody unless you brought his head along, you know. Bring his head along, you've got proof, you know, this guy's dead, you know, right here, you can show it. And, and that was very standard procedure. This is not a particularly barbaric act on the part of the Israelites. It was very common practice in those days. It happened all the time, and I could tell you some pretty horrible accounts <laughs> of how, you know, that's been used historically. So we need, we need not think uh, ill of Israel here at, at that particular juncture. Well, let's read on into the 8th chapter and see what, what happens here. 
Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. But he, that's Gideon, of course, said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? God has given the leaders of Midian, the commanders of the army, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger towards him subsided when he said that. The work of the Lord is never more hurt than by division within the ranks of God's people. Yeah? The church almost always grows as the product of outside persecution. But the church can be destroyed from within by division amongst God's people. And that's what the enemy is trying to do here. The enemy, meaning the devil, is, is trying to weaken Gideon and the work that Israel is doing here by causing the Ephraimites to become jealous of the fact that they're not going to get all the spoils that they could have gotten had they been involved in this in the first place. Now, the men of Ephraim have had an easy victory. They've just been collecting the Midianites as they come running at them. <laughs> you know, just kind of like a net and uh, killing them as they came and, of course, collecting the goodies that, that the, whatever happened to be on the bodies of the individuals. And they actually had captured the two Midianite uh, commanders here. But they were upset with Gideon, they said, because they were not in on the initial plan. Now, it's hard to believe that when Gideon was, um, was, was calling on, hello? Speaking of Gideon, <laughs> here come the Gideonites. <laughs> it's hard to believe that when Gideon sent out the call, that the men would come unto him to form that original 32,000 man army, that the Ephraimites didn't know about this. That the Ephraimites didn't have an opportunity to join if they would. Now, it's true that Ephraim is a little bit further south than the tribe of Manasseh, and, and Ephraim doesn't butt up right against the Jezreel Valley, and that's one of the reasons probably why there wasn't a specific effort to try to say, hey, you guys come too. But, but certainly they knew about this. So they're, they're trying to uh, make an issue out of something that really wasn't an issue to begin with. But what they were jealous of was the fact that they would not get in on all of the spoil and the glory of the victory. Because the camp was up in Jezreel Valley, or on the edge of the Jezreel Valley, and, and the 120,000 men who are dead already, before, or, uh, including the ones, of course, that die at the fords, are, are spread out all along the way. And all the goodies, not all of them, but many of the goodies are back in the camp because as those guys had the terror of the Lord in, they didn't look around and pick up all their goodies and say, oh, my wife will kill me if I don't bring this back and grab all their stuff and run with it. No. It's always easy to trace the route of a fleeing army because they throw off everything as they go along the way. One of the first things they throw away is their weapon. I mean, this has been seen. You study the history of the Civil War. I mean, you name the war. And, and they just toss their weapon and run in terror. And as time passes, they throw off everything they can possibly throw off, you know, short of running naked, to, to go faster, to not be hindered. And so this, this, was, this whole area was just littered with not only the fallen enemy, but all of their goodies as they ran along the way. The only thing that was left, of course, were the things that were actually attached to them wherever they were attached to them as, as they ran. 
In the wisdom of God, we find Gideon responding to this attack being made on him. Why didn't you invite us to be in on this? You have cut us out of, of spoils. You've cut us out of glory. And Gideon could have said, well, where were you when I needed you? You know, or something like that. But Gideon doesn't do that. Gideon replies very diplomatically. He diffuses their anger by saying, first of all, that obviously Ephraim is superior to the clan of Abizar, which is, of course, Gideon's own clan. He's saying, obviously, you are superior to me. You're greater warriors than I am. Uh, your, your tribe is greater than my clan. And then he said, what, what, is, what is what I have done compared to you? You have captured the actual commanders of the army. You know, you've, you've captured, uh, well, I know, who do you want to use as, as a compare? You've captured the desert fox. What else could you hope for, you know? I, I don't think that we can use reason here to think that what Gideon said in and of itself would have been enough to appease the Ephraimites. I think God just spread oil and troubled waters here. And he caused them to be appeased because God was not going to let the enemy cause dissension in the ranks at this moment in time. Well, let's read on. Verse 4. Yes? I guess what troubles me of this passage is that it just seems like even though God has done everything possible to show that he did this, that Ephraim still concludes that Gideon and 300 men did it. <laughs> and they, don't, they don't say, well, what a great victory God did, and God cut it. And, and, and it doesn't seem like, like Gideon quite holds that up. Of course, we don't know what all was said there, but where is the pointing to God and God delivering us instead of, well, you know, who are we? We just, really, you know, we didn't do near, nearly as much as you did. We didn't do anything. Yeah. And, and as you say, everything is not written here that probably was involved in the conversation. But uh, you, would, you would think that if Gideon had said, well, it's the work of the Lord, that that would have been written down. The, quote, revival... Whatever, to whatever extent it was developing here, probably hadn't reached Ephraim yet. And so they were probably very pagan in their orientation. But even, even this great victory that should have been obvious to them that it wasn't beginning in 300 million pictures. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't. They still think that they did it. But Gideon's character all along deflects conflict. Yes, he does. He's very much a, an appeaser, putting oil in troubled waters all the way along the way. And I think that's not because, certainly it's probably part of his characteristic, a part of his uh, personality, and that's why, in part, God chose him. But I think it's, of course, augmented by God's presence in his life. Good points. Well, let's read it, verse 4. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. He said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary. And I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Z Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give you bread, give bread to your army? And Gideon said, All right, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. <laughs> well, there's a point at which he's got to be a judge. <laughs> And Gideon said, all right, oops, I already said that, verse 8, 
And he went up from there to Penuel and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered just as the men of Succoth had answered. And he spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east. For the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. And Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in tents on the east of Noba and Jabahath, and attacked the camp. And when the camp when the camp was unsuspecting or, or secure. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Yeah, Gideon and his uh, 300 men have continued the pursuit here of the main Midianite force. Now, the question could be asked, because the scripture is totally silent about this. When Gideon crossed the Jordan at the fords to, consider, to continue the pursuit, did Ephraim join him? Doesn't say. When Ephraim is pursuing this 15,000 men up to the other side, were there Ephraimites with him? In other words, was his army expanded beyond 300 now? It doesn't say. Uh, from the silence, we might assume maybe not. But if you look at the situation, you wonder, why not? Why wouldn't Elohim chasing after the enemy army? They weren't prepared for a long, rapid march, and the army was starved. I mean, these guys were hungry. And so when they came to these two cities, now these towns, actually we'd call them, towns are in the tribal area of Gad. Okay, you had Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, as you go north up the Transjordanian area. And it was very logical that when they came to these cities that they could expect some help. So at Succoth, Succoth is located, if go back to our little uh, invisible map here, as you cross the Jordan fords there, and as you go east, you're still down the Jordan Valley. Succoth is right at the opening to the Jabbok Valley. The Jabbok is the main river that comes off the Transjordanian Highland and comes down the escarpment and joins the um, Jordan River. It's the main river off the highlands of Gilead. And there's a deep canyon there that goes up into the highlands. And right at the mouth is the city of Succoth. So they're, they've crossed the river, they're going to head up this canyon, but they're not going up the canyon yet, so they stop at the city of Succoth. Now, six miles up the canyon is Penuel. And, and they reasonably expected, as they got there, that the people would say, oh, you're, you're chasing the Midianites who are our, our enemies, and there's been a great slaughter, and you need bread. Oh, sure, we'll give you bread. Not. Now, certainly these two towns had probably been tributary to the Midianites. They had been under the Midianite thumb. They were afraid of the Midianites. They had been dominated by them for eight years. And so they were afraid that if they gave bread to Gideon and the Midianites recovered, they would say, suffer reprisal for aiding the enemy, quote. And so they, they give this, this almost strange answer to us. Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hands that we should give aid to your army? In other words, if you already captured those kings, so now we should feed you? No, you haven't captured them. They're still out there, and, and there, there are thousands of warriors with them, and you've got this puny little force here. Where's God, huh? I mean, God is just... Of course, they didn't see it. They could only listen... You know, they, they probably saw fleeing Midianites going by, and uh, they, they heard the word from, Midian, from Gideon, but... You know, they, they probably didn't go back down to check it out and find out if there were these thousands of Midianites lying all over the place. However, 
What happens to them is the result of the fact that these two cities, by refusing to, re to provide bread, were rejecting the word of the Lord through Gideon, and they were rejecting Gideon as the Shofat. They're saying, you are not God's called judge, and we don't believe that the word of the Lord comes through you and that God has used you. That's what they're saying. We do not believe. So Gideon had every right to therefore pronounce judgment on these two towns, which would be carried out as soon as he had completed his business with the Midianites. But of course, I don't know that they were terribly afraid that he would complete his business with the Midianites. There were 15,000 of them that were still alive and well. Well, I don't know how well they were, but they were alive. Um, they had fled, and they had made it across the Jordan, and they had not killed each other on, on the route. Uh, and, and, and they were up now in the highlands with Zeba and Zalmunna, uh, the two Midianite kings. <laughs> Just a little aside here. It's really funny how many people are given biblical names, but how many biblical names are ignored? You know, David and... Uh, Elijah and names like that are used, but how many people have used Zeba or Zalmunna, you know? <laughs> of course, maybe the fact they were Midianites played a role in this. Yeah. Call him Zal for short. <laughs> the two kings with their 15,000 men were camped at a place the scripture calls Karkor. Now, Karkor has never been located specifically. In general, it's believed to have been just a few miles south of Rabbath Ammon. <laughs> which is the principal city of the Ammonites up on the top of the plateau of Gilead. So the distance between, say, Succoth and Karkor was probably another 40 miles. See, so they have already come 40 miles. They've got to go another 40 miles, 40 miles. But these 40 miles are more difficult because the first thing you have to do once you cross the Jordan River and get over to past Succoth is you have to climb the plateau of Gilead. That's a 4,000-foot escarpment from the Jordan Valley to the top of the plateau. So you've got to go up through that canyon up to the top of the plateau. So you're traveling 40 miles, yes, but you're also climbing 4,000 feet. And these guys were already tired and famished. And, and that's why I think that it's, um, it's a really interesting little three words at the end of verse 4, talking about getting his 300 men. Weary, yet pursuing. Faint, yet still at it. Th that could be a concept applied to the Christian life. Sometimes we're faint, weary, but we're still doing the work of the Lord. You know, we do the work of the Lord and the strength of the Lord, but we, it doesn't mean we always feel on top of the world while we're doing it. And we don't feel like, you know, maybe you do every morning, jump out of bed and sing a song along with the birds. I personally think the morning is for the birds. Uh, <laughs> not quite. But, you know, sometimes we go about our task and, and we feel very weary and heavy laden and yet pursuing, doing what God has called us to do. They march to the top of the plateau and as noted in verse 10, 120,000 Midianite warriors had already fallen since Gideon had blown the trumpet the previous evening but 15,000 had escaped, and Gideon was not satisfied with 120,000. He was going to be satisfied when the enemy was annihilated. 135,000 of them 
were dead, not just 120,000. He had no intention of allowing these 15,000 to escape. And so as they reached the top of the plateau and passed Rabbath Ammon and, and marched south from there, the scripture tells us that they came upon the enemy camp while the enemy camp was secure. The Hebrew means secure. They were encamped. They were resting. I mean, they probably didn't even post any guards. They were all flat out dead to the world there, sound asleep. The Midianites thought they had put enough ground between them and this horrible thing that happened to them. But what they didn't know was that Gideon had a singleness of purpose. Gideon was empowered by the mind of the Lord, and that mind was to wipe out the evil ones to wipe out those that had preyed upon the people of Israel. One of the truths that you find throughout Scripture, and we've talked about this before, is God frequently uses pagan nations to chastise His people, but woe unto them if they take the glory unto themselves. And you can look down through the pages of history and look at the nations that have destroyed or harmed Israel and look at the wreckage that has been left behind. Look at the nation of Assyria after they boasted of their great destruction and Assyria was totally wasted. Look at the great nation of Babylon after they carried Israel off into captivity and Babylon was wasted. I mean, time and time and time again you see it happening. So it would be to the Midianites. Yes, the Midianites were God's whip on Israel for them to realize that they were apostate and they needed to return. But woe unto the Midianites if they use God's allowance to their advantage and to honor their own gods. Yes, it's the gods of the Midianites that have done this. No, it's not. And they also didn't recognize the energizing power of God. They figured if they were flat out dead tired, Gideon and his men have got to be flat out dead tired. So how could they possibly do it? But God gave Gideon and his men the energy to do the impossible. And they routed the 15,000. I think they broke on the camp and, and just annihilated them. They were so tired they could hardly even drag themselves out of bed probably. And they probably didn't even have the strength to defend themselves. And what would they defend themselves with? They probably threw their weapons all away. Somebody's coming at you with a sword and all you got your fist, uh, you're not at an advantage. It reminds me of General Sam Houston back in the Texas Revolution. General Santa Ana had brought an army north to punish the Texans for their revolt. And, uh, of course, he had captured the Alamo eventually uh, after a great loss of men power. But at a battle called the Battle of San Jacinto, Santa Ana's army was taking a siesta. Texans weren't all that much into siestas, but they knew when an army was in siesta, they weren't exactly ready. And even though Santa Ana's army was 50% larger than the Texan army, the Texans captured the entire, captured or killed virtually the entire army of Mexicans, including Santa Ana himself, with a loss of almost nobody, simply because they attacked them while they were all in their, under their, yeah, their sombreros over their faces, and they had their, <laughs> their ponchos on, you know, and they were just sawn logs when the Texans broke into the camp. That's the same thing that happened here. And the Midian army, Midianite army was wiped out, and the two kings were captured. Now, if I had been Zebra Zalmuna, I would not be very happy about the situation at this point. Because it was obvious to them by now whose God was greater. 
Because an impossible thing. And I, I'm sure that when he finally those two kings finally realized, you mean, this is your army? This is, the, this is it? This is what we've been running from? I think they were horrified. But I think they were smart enough to know that it was the work of the God of Israel. They were far more oriented towards superstitious things, but beyond that, believing that the spiritual realm was alive and well in the physical realm than we tend to be today in our Greco-Roman uh, westernized materialistic society, where we tend to consider the spirit realm almost as non-existent. Well, the things which happen next are part of the promises that uh, Gideon had made and will result in his being clearly demonstrating his judgeship. But since it's what time it is, we'll, we'll pick up there next week with uh, the 13th verse of chapter 8 and uh, see what happened to Gideon and his men next.